Hey, really good friends. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take care of yourself. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femblo. Hello. Hi. How my are you doing? My toe just cracked. Sorry if you heard that on the... What did? On the, my toe. Oh, my toe cracked. Okay. Well, what a great way to start a podcast. <laughs> How are you doing? How's uh, school and, and work and, and all um, that? It's busy. Yeah. So not only did we start this podcast in COVID times, but I also went to grad school because I was like, you know what? Why not? What so, else are you going to do? Exactly. As if I have anything better to do. Well, I do. I have a full-time job is what I have better. You have a job. Yeah. I have. Yeah. So um, also in school. So that just started and I went back to not remote work. So which should be oh, illegal. Oh God, you're back in, you're back in person. I am. I am. How is that? That sounds like terrifying right now. I don't think I would want to go back in person. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to get out of pajamas. Yeah, um, it's really uh, no fun commuting. I also work with students. I work at a university, and I'm not going to tell you which one because please don't get me fired. But I work, I work for, I work for a university, and so we work with like a lot of students face to face a day. So, um, someone at work said we're in post COVID times, and I don't know who uh, let who told them that information. But we are. Yeah, where not. did they? Where did they? Where'd they get that? I have no idea, but so that's been difficult. But you know what? I found out today that Rihanna's having a baby, and I, know. <laughs> I, I listened to the Lamez soundtrack after last week's episode. So that's mm-hmm. gonna get me through this week. Yeah, Lamez and Rihanna's baby. Yep, Rihanna's baby. The fact that Rihanna is bringing life into this world, uh, I think I can make it through th- Monday at least. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Rihanna has created new life and revived my life. So I am appreciative of that. So thank you, Rihanna. Mm -hmm. Friend of the podcast. Friend of the pod, Rihanna and her baby. Unborn baby. Yes. How are you doing, Jared? I'm good. Um, I was on a walk with my dog, Ranger, right before we uh, started recording this. And... We were walking down the street and we passed one of those little free libraries. Um, you know, the ones that people put in front of their homes and just pe- anybody can kind of like throw a book in and you can take it for free. You know, those. Yeah, sure. But I will also say that that was a little confusing of a description because all libraries are free. Um, <laughs> but, okay, fair. but yes, I know the like book exchange situation. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I passed uh one on on my walk and i looked at it really quickly just to see if anything was in it and there wasn't much um there was one book and it was really really thick and on the spine it said what i thought at the time was super orgasm <laughs> and i was kind of like oh that's a little like in a free library like a public that's I bold to put that. that book in there yeah but then i realized maybe 10 seconds after I passed it that it said super organism and it was a science book 
um, okay. which made me think about biology in high school and always being like, don't say orgasm, don't say orgasm, yeah. say organism, don't be that like person. A constant fear of being a 14-year-old sitting in a biology class and being like, if I have to read the paragraph that has organism in it, I will right. just disintegrate right I here. I will say spot. orgasm. Yeah. Like, I, it's not even a word that I say frequently ever really but the the fear of saying the word <laughs> orgasm in my freshman year biology class was enough to make me want to shit myself like I yeah didn't want I didn't want anything to do with it like the the politics of high school are so funny too because it's just a word but I know collectively right. every single person would probably agree that that would be a nightmare worthy situation Oh, it would be the worst thing that you could do. I think yeah. worse than murder, probably, is yeah, say the, the word un- orgasm. <laughs> the, the, the universe was giving you signs about the podcast, though. Now it's the only thing on your mind. I know my sister came to visit today before going back to college. And on my computer, I had up some of the research for today, which was like about it was entitled penis size bibliography and masturbation <laughs> no. tendencies among 60 to 69 year olds population. Oh God, and that's so, a miserable thing to read about. Yeah. I was like, Oh Meg, just, you know, do my podcast stuff. Don't, like, don't worry, <laughs> don't about, worry it. about it. Fine. <laughs> you yeah, have like your but, incognito tab open. So it doesn't go yeah. into your history. <laughs> But we're committed to this now. I know last episode, we couldn't believe we were here. But now my dad knows about this podcast. Really? So listen, to our dads, if you're listening, <laughs> thanks. Also, maybe sorry in advance, but thanks for Please your support. Please don't listen. You can, we appreciate your support. You can head you out can now. close <laughs> out. You can close out of that podcast. Thank you. I also wanted to say before we got into our stories today a couple of things happened recently by in new jersey so i'm still in new jersey and where near where we grew up so the town next to me where i went to middle school you know very fitting for this podcast um they had a church with a pride flag hanging and somebody burned it what Um, yeah we had just i had just read the article today um and so someone they're like investigating it as a quote-unquote bias incident which i guess is this town's way of saying hate crime because yeah it's a hate crime that is a hate Um, crime yeah so that came up today along with like the florida yeah the don't say proposed florida yeah florida law it's proposed by some of the the republican members um, within the Florida legislature, prohibiting LGBTQ topics in school, both educational and otherwise. It's incredibly restrictive in what students are allowed to talk about. It's incredibly upsetting that there are still bills out there that are being proposed that are trying to stop the conversations from happening. And the conversations are what bring visibility to issues and normalize certain certain topics that shouldn't have to be normalized but in this day and age need to i'm sorry for all of the lgbtqia plus teens specifically in florida that are having to deal with this and feeling like maybe that 
they shouldn't be open or they should continue to hide mm-hmm. or they don't deserve, you know, love and happiness. And 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 it has ripple effects. It's upsetting that it happens yeah. there. It's upsetting that then people across the country and globally are or already feeling those effects of that. And it's just a reminder that, you know, we are doing this a lot for fun and for Jared and I to talk more because I am really bad at texting. So obviously a podcast was the best choice. Um, But that, you know, this historical context definitely doesn't exist in a vacuum and we're still have a, have a ways to go in, in informing people and kind of bringing things back to like making things more visible. And it's definitely not going to be just the two of us. And I don't think that's what we're trying to do, but just a reminder that this stuff isn't all, you know, behind us. Right. It's very much here and now. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually, can I read you real quick, this um, small little, um, thing from um learning for justice this is um a program that's helping create and get lgbtq plus topics into classrooms they write about lgbtq historical figures that the erasure of lgbtq figures from our history books and classrooms does a disservice to students on three fronts One, it introduces bias into our studies providing an incomplete and unfair portrait of our past Two, it strips LGBTQ students of role models and precedents, leaving them to feel disconnected from past and present and less capable of making history. And three, it takes away possibilities for students to envision a happy, thriving adult life for themselves. Instead, they see blankness, non-existence, conformity, or invisibility, a void of potential life purpose that can increase suicide risk. So I think that's pretty fitting. I think it's important to remember that speaking about LGBTQ plus topics, especially in schools, is incredibly important. Um, the teenage population is very, very vulnerable. They're going through, like, always going through a hard time. They're scared to say orgasm in biology class. They don't need to also worry about if the if the laws in their state are going to allow them to ever be able to openly be in love with someone. Like that's right. not a thing we need to tack on to adolescence no. because it's no. miserable enough as it fucking is. Exactly. LGBTQ issues, identities, people, historical figures have existed for as long as our recorded history has. And so... They're, it's it's out there and and they're not going away anytime soon yeah and on that note i guess why don't we dive into our topics today week two topics i think these topics are a little bit different than our first yeah. week one of the things about this podcast is that we don't want to solely focus on people we want to also focus on a bunch of other things like places and events and ideas and basically anything that falls under the category of a noun um if it's queer we want to talk about it we (laughs) yeah we want to there's there's plenty of things that are queer so we want to kind of widen the spectrum and talk about a range of topics i'm going first this week right yeah you are going for uh, yeah okay you're gonna go first this week because i went first last week bit that bullet it's your turn it's your perfect This week, I want to talk to you about the hanky code or the covert language of kink. 
So the sources I used for today are a Refinery29 article called The Old Secret Style Language of the LGBTQ Plus Community by Landon Peoples, a blog post titled Hanky Code, Folklore, Language, and Leather by Beyond Hanky Code, Hanky Panky in a Bridge History of the Hanky Code by J. Raoul Cornier, an article from the women being WMN Zine called Archival Rights, the Hanky Code by Brooke Palmieri of Camp Books, an article from the Saint Foundation blog called From the Archives, the Hanky Code According to Bob Darman's Address Book by Alexander Kakala, an article called How to Flag, the Hanky Code Explained, written by Agnes and Edie for the site Agnes and Edie, and the Wikipedia page on LGBTQ plus rights in the 1970s. So I don't know if you know this, Rachel, and I don't know why you would, because you're not a single gay man, you're a woman, and very much in a committed relationship. But opening Grindr, Scruff, Tinder, or any gateway app to hookup culture all culminates in the same eerie result every single time. A single message from a headless torso that questions, into? Whether it's for a quick fix or a long-term solution, gay and bisexual men seem to be obsessed with knowing the sexual preferences of a potential partner. Some men even go as far as putting their sexual preferences into their bios or display names. And I want to note that in recent years, the concept of preferences has been used as an excuse by the white, cis, able-bodied gay community to fill hookup and dating apps with stigmatizing language. The phrase, no fats, no femmes, no blacks, no Asians, was spread like wildfire and excused by the top hookup apps, creating incredibly unsafe spaces for anybody that fits under the other umbrella. But this concept of wanting to know another man's sexual preferences or to know if your sexual desires are compatible for one another is nothing new. These conversations have been happening for decades now, whether the world knew they were or not. Let's go back to the 1970s, the decade of bell bottoms and disco. Yes, take me there. <laughs> I will. So the tensions are high right now for queer folks. I mean, tensions are always high for queer folks, but Coming hot off the heels of the Stonewall riots, the feeling of liberation is palpable in the air. Transformation is a light at the end of the tunnel that many queer Americans feel like is just around the next bend. Throughout this decade, we see the movement to decriminalize sodomy. The term homosexuality is removed from the American Psychiatric Association's list of psychiatric disorders. Harvey Milk runs for a local office and wins. Queer neighborhoods like the Castro in San Francisco are thriving large pro-gay rights marches in Washington, D.C. take place. But at the same time that we're seeing this progress, the increasing visibility of LGBTQ rights also creates a lot of backlash. Harvey Milk is assassinated. Anita Bryant, a singer and anti-gay rights activist, leads a campaign to reverse gay rights ordinances in Florida. Queer people are incarcerated at extremely high rates. So there's this incredibly exciting taste of freedom and visibility, but also like a constant looming black cloud of danger that you don't want to find yourself caught under. And I don't know if you'll be able to relate to this, but I imagine it's a similar feeling to when you get your driver's license and then you tell your parents you're going to one place, but then you end up going somewhere completely different. And there's always this like thrilling risk that they're going to find out. And um, mom, I know you're listening to this. I never did that. I promise. Um, yeah, because I was the one who was driving. So technically, Never Jared did didn't it. do that. 
But unlike how I mentioned in the beginning of the story, queer men of the 1970s didn't have apps that they could just easily open to find their next hookup. And they certainly couldn't just go up to another man and proposition him as there's an incredibly high risk that leads to a violent reaction. Sure, men could go cruising, which in short is when men would walk or hang around a certain area like a park or a store to find someone to hook up with. But that came with its own dangers too, including undercover cops with the intention of arresting and or beating queer men. So like queer people throughout history are always forced to do, they find a way to communicate queer identity, sexual availability, and sexual fetishes, all while staying safe and for the most part silent. The Hanky Code. The Handkerchief Code, also known as the Hanky Code, the Banana Code, or flagging, refers to the practice of putting a specific colored bandana in one's back pocket to signal to those also in the know a few things. What kinks and fetishes you're into, what kind of sex you're looking for, and what role you play in those activities. Can I interrupt real quick? Yeah, please do. Okay, so one... Aside from Jared telling me that this was his topic for the week, I don't know anything about this. So first thing I'm going to say, and please tell me to be quiet if this spoils something, I thought it was referring to hanky-panky in some way. Like, doesn't that mean, doesn't that mean sex? The term hanky-panky does mean sex, um, but, but it's not necessarily in the same context as this. Okay, and the other thing was, boy, does this sound like... Uh, middle school so I went to a Catholic Catholic middle school and um, don't worry all the same wild stuff if not more happened there because everyone was repressed but um <laughs> like the jelly bracelet thing uh-huh. um, did you do you know about that I do know about that but why don't you explain for people that are listening um so the jelly bracelets were you would get a different color jelly bracelet that the colors coincided with sex acts or other things that you have done or would be willing to do with someone. So if someone, wasn't it if someone like broke it off you or put it on you, you had to do that? It was a secret way for middle schoolers and high schoolers to basically brag to their friends what they had done with the boys uh, Mm -hmm. without the teachers knowing what they were doing and the hanky code is the exact same thing okay cool and dad if you're still listening this far i didn't have any jelly bracelets so it's really okay i wore bows to school every day in middle school you're we're still good and if he's not listening what how many bracelets did you have i really didn't have any jelly bracelets i'm actually really sad about it (laughs) i'm sorry you're you're bringing up a sensitive subject for me i'm really sorry i didn't i didn't mean to you So there are a few different debates as to where the hanky code specifically started, either in Manhattan or San Francisco. In Manhattan, it's stated that a journalist for the Village Voice, which was a news and culture paper in New York that had strong support for the queer community, joked that instead of wearing keys to indicate a sexual position, which was a common practice in the leather community, it might be easier and more efficient if men started to wear colored hankies in their pockets. In San Francisco, it's stated that a department store for erotic merchandise called The Trading Post began selling the colored hankies and accompanying little booklets which decoded each hanky's meaning. There is even sort of like a folklore myth that plays on the idea that using colored handkerchiefs to denote a certain type of position already existed like 100 years before the 1970s during the gold rush. 
Legend has it that during this time when men rushed to the West in search of gold, there was a shortage of women at square dances, which meant that some men had to dance the women's parts. The men who danced the men's part wore a blue handkerchief, while the men who danced the women's wore a red handkerchief. And so this system avoided having to waste time figuring out who would dance which part. We love the organization. Right. And so it's kind of just like an easy way to be like, we don't want to talk about this. We just want to dance. And those men during the gold rush weren't queer, but it's just kind of showing along with like the jelly bracelets that there are a lot of different codes that have to do with clothing that very much so speak of volumes without having to say a single word. And no matter the actual origins of the hanky code, it quickly became popularized in the cisgender, mainly male, gay community. Signs and tiny guidebooks began to be posted in San Francisco and Manhattan stores, and gay men quickly took to the covert sartorial code. A user by the name Future Summers made a post on the blog Beyond Hanky Code, which details their first encounter with the hanky code in a gay sex shop. Across from the porn and on the other side of a display full of rubber fists was a wall of Western-style handkerchiefs of many colors. There were small wallet-sized booklets available which connected every color I saw there and plenty that I didn't to some sexual activity. This was supposed to be a secret language of color and cloth available to me as I emerged into a rainbow world from a family that was rejecting me in the language I had for myself. Hangy code was existence, it was definition, it was possibility, and it could be folded up and stuck in one or the other of my back pockets as I chose. And in these little booklets, which were sold or given with a hanky, viewers would originally find a list that contained about 10 or so generally agreed upon colors and meanings. It was always standard that if the hanky is worn in the back left pocket, it denotes a top or active position. And while worn in the right pocket, it denotes a bottom or passive position. And I'm going to go through the 10 generally accepted original colors right now. So if you have anybody under the age of like a late teenager, um, you might want to put on headphones or uh, tell them to leave the room. I'm so excited. <laughs> so red means fisting right out, right out the gate. Red means fisting. And okay. so if it was worn in the left pocket, it would mean a fister. And if it was worn in the right pocket, it meant a fisty or someone that was receiving fisting. Okay. I prefer to consider it being called a fisty. A fisty. Okay, perfect. Orange meant anything goes. Yellow meant water sports, also known as urine play. Um, green meant sex work. Light blue meant oral sex. Dark blue meant anal sex. Purple meant piercings and piercing play. Brown meant scat play. Gray meant bondage. And black meant S&M. And so it's also worth noting that the red bandana, which means fisting, was apparently already used in the leather community before the hanky code even existed and added these nine additional colors and their meanings. I love a well-organized group first and foremost. Absolutely. I am truly loving the the cohesiveness of like the just the general agreement of these things i am also i think as a straight woman talking about it with other straight women these conversations would certainly never happen like i remember people still 
and but especially in high school like could not comfortably describe things that they were into or wanted to try sexually and so it's obviously a whole different can of worms that this had to be done in secret which led to all of the fantastic organization but it's really amazing that within the community people were very very open and practicing consent in a super cool way i am also loving the the creativity in practicing consent here (laughs) it was i mean out of a necessity to create the hanky code and so there um was a guy named bob i believe his name was and he basically wrote these little booklets these little guides um, called his address book and he published it yearly and so it was basically like a guide of each city's um gay clubs or gay bars um right it, it was, was the farmer's almanac exactly but for gay but for like gay right. clubs and so yes, in these booklets <laughs> as early as like the mid 19 mid to late 1970s he was publishing these codes and so these were the little booklets that began to kind of pop up and everybody that read these very very popular guides all knew about the code because of him so it became really popularized really quickly and so it was because of that dissemination of of the the hanky code that people knew what it was and and how to use it specifically gay men gay and bisexual men but even in the late 1970s a lesbian hanky guide even appeared on the scene following similar colors and meanings to the list followed by queer men but by the mid 1980s a new lesbian's hanky code began circulating around um and it was published by an anonymous author who only left their email address as a name punkfemsub at aol.com it is an email that no longer works but they expanded the list to 42 style hankies and meanings, including Victorian, sci-fi roleplay, and vampirism. And so it went from 10 colors and meanings, kind of all standard, to all of these different sexual acts. You could get really, really specific, and it was all different colors and all different types right. of material, like silk or um, lace or like a checkered pattern or a leopard or all of these like different crazy colors and patterns and they all meant something. I would love to see a graph of the value of a handkerchief at this time. And I would love to see the sharp increase and then steady, I'm going to assume (laughs) decline of, of fabric needed for handkerchiefs. But I do find that really fascinating and a really really interesting way to explore kinks in not only an underground way but like a pre like super like social media access to porn all of these things that i think consume the way we think of those things now i think this is all very very fascinating absolutely and the way that they were able to use it um to express themselves in something that was so non-inherently queer was like almost a bonus it was like they were able to wear a hanky out in public and tell other queer people hey you can come up to me hey you can ask me out hey if you're into this i'm into this too and i'm open and accepting without putting themselves in any sort of danger it was like 
it was game changing. I just thought of this has absolutely just popped into my head. There's a Bruce Springsteen album cover where he has some kind of handkerchief in his back pocket. Is it a right. rag? Is it a bandana? Yeah, it's like it a red something. But that's maybe because he, he's a man. He's cleaning cars. Probably. But it does. You're right. It's such kind of a benign thing mm-hmm. that you wouldn't think twice over. Right. If you didn't know about it, it you wouldn't like a, read into it. Yeah, absolutely. Throughout the most popular years of the Hanky Code, both the men's and women's lists were ever-expanding and constantly being adapted. Unfortunately, though, the Hanky Code was largely originally a movement to harbor masculinity in gay and bisexual men, and often excluded women, feminine men, transgender people of any gender, and non-binary or gender-fluid people. It's mentioned in a lot of articles I've read that color coding is hard to separate from the queer community, and I agree. For example, Gilbert Baker created the first LGBT rainbow flag in the late 1970s, each color having a different meaning. And as the years go by, we see the evolution of this flag. There's new versions of the original representing all different gender expressions and sexualities. We even see initiatives like Philadelphia's 2017 More Color, More Pride project, which included a brown and black stripe to acknowledge the racism in the LGBTQ plus community. And Daniel Kassar's progress flag, which includes the blue, white, and pink trans colors to acknowledge the transphobia that that community faces. And each of these flags change with the needs of the community and with the goal of expanding the inclusiveness and representation of its symbolism. And I believe that while this expansion of the Hanky Code with all of its new and ever-changing additions was intended to be open to and embrace more niche kinks and be inclusive to sexual minorities in the community at large, but what it did was begin to change how the Hanky Code was actually used. While there's truth in the fact that some people may have worn the more outrageous colors and material hankies than the original 10 with all seriousness, Gail Rubin, who is one of the two writers for the supposed original lesbian hanky code, says that the exotic colors were often worn more for humor than serious cruising. What happens is that when the hanky code begins to become more of a joke than an actual practice, it begins to take the validity out of safe flagging and cruising practices, making people less likely to genuinely use it as such. So the original purpose of making public your sexual inclinations and preferences no longer really applies, but what still is effective is that the hanky still serves as a conversation starter, an icebreaker, you know, an invitation. And then the decline in popularity of the Hanky Code came throughout the 80s and into the 90s for a multitude of reasons. Regional differences of 30 to 40 Hankies was impossible to know and keep track of. So the universal understanding of the Hanky Code became a bit blurred and undefined because of the popularity of the Hanky Code, kind of like Bruce Springsteen's cover. Um, as oftentimes these things kind of do, the trend where hankies began to bleed into hetero pop culture and began to, and people began to wear bandanas unwittingly, not even knowing about the hanky code. So men and women would then approach a person wearing a hanky and it would be a straight person, which leads us back to the problem for which the hanky code was created to solve that this could put the people approaching other people in a position of danger. And most importantly, in the 80s, The rise of HIV and AIDS, the pandemic, made casual or anonymous sex incredibly dangerous, so the risk outweighed everything else to a lot of people. However, as J. Raul Cornier writes, 
Hanky code flagging continued in the queer BDSM subculture where alternative sexual activities deemed as low or no risk for infection were practiced. And just like all covert languages used by the queer community, the hanky code evolved and new sartorial covert language was developed and until those were evolved and so on and so forth. And today, the hanky code is still in use and there are many more colors expressing various desires, scenes, kinks, and fetishes with around 65 colors and materials and meanings. Um, I'll try to post the full decoder chart on Instagram at historicallyreally, or I'll link it somewhere if I can't fit it all in. I do want to end this story about the hanky code by quoting the article How to Flag the Hanky Code Explained from the site Agnes and Edie. You can wear as many hankies as you like or have a minimalist moment if you prefer. These aren't set in stone either. You could have a red Monday, a purple Tuesday, a green Wednesday if you're a Virgo moon and like to plan accordingly. So if you're of the appropriate age, dear listener, maybe give the hanky code a try. You never know what kind of friends or really good friends you just might make. So be safe and have fun. And that is the story of the hanky code. I love that. Oh my gosh. Like, that's so cool. And also very fitting that part of the demise of signifiers like that comes from straight people co-opting gay culture. Just like it's every single Twitter meme of as soon as white straight women get a hold of something, it immediately gets ruined (laughs) you know like like the amount of and i think this episode is so telling of that the amount of culture that's shaped by queerness and blackness and then just gets co-opted into what's palatable for like straight white people and then that becomes the trend but that was so fun to hear about i'm gonna go see what uh bandanas i've got in my in my little cabinet over there. Um, but that that was absolutely such a blast to hear about. Hard to compete with uh, the hanky code, but and me. I think I'm ready. Hard to compete with me. You in general. Right. You in general. Thank yes. you. I just needed some validation there, but... You got it. You can have validation from me anytime. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) All right. Let's get into your story. What are you going to be talking about today? So this week, I'm going to be talking about the Kinsey scale. Ooh, very nice. So yeah, this week, every time I've sat down to take notes, I just keep saying in my head, like, the let's talk about sex, baby, Lyric. I'm not going to sing for you on this podcast, so sorry. I'm very excited to not only talk about this topic, but get get that out of my head. So <laughs> we're just gonna we're just gonna talk about sex. We're gonna talk about the Kinsey's scale today. I'm so excited. So, I'm ready. Sources for today's episode are from the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. An article from University Affairs entitled "Asexuals: The Group That Kinsey Forgot." Southampton Information Directory, and an article by Jennifer German in the Journal of Bisexuality entitled Kinsey and the Politics of Bisexual Authenticity. The Kinsey Institute is still a functioning research 
department and so they provide a a really comprehensive backstory of all of this as well as some resources that i used after the fact so they were a a pretty robust resource for this week that's great that's awesome yeah moved on we upgraded for week two from encyclopedia britannica to some more more reputable sources (laughs) um So we're going to take it back to Hoboken, New Jersey, actually, uh, in 1894, where Alfred Charles Kinsey was born. And also, um, not but a year later, did uh, famed anti-Semite Henry Ford begin selling cars in America. So only to, a little over 100 years later, make Hoboken, New Jersey the worst place to ever bring a vehicle. Please. Absolutely. If you're not from New Jersey, and if you ever come to visit, uh, find a different mode of transportation to go to Hoboken. Walk, swim, yeah, do something else. Anything, anything. But anyway, Alfred, Al, if you will, uh, Kinsey was born in 1894. So we're going to skip ahead uh, a little bit all the way to 1947. So sorry, wow. Al, okay. we're, not, we're not doing your backstory today. He lived his life. Maybe yeah, maybe another episode. He's a fully fledged adult now. Okay. In 1947, he's a, he's also now a doctor. Uh, so oh, good for him, Mazel. Yeah. So in 1947, Dr. Kinsey was a biologist, primarily interested in non-human animal species. Also, as a professor, he was asked to teach a marriage prep class. Um, I don't fully. I really try to understand what that meant. And I don't. I don't know what a marriage prep class is. Marriage prep for for who? So this was on a college campus, and it was asked by the women of the campus to, like, the married women on campus to Mm -hmm. do a class on, like, marriages. Like, I don't know if it was, like, successful marriages. Like, you're about to get married, so here's what you need to do to be in the relationship? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. But this is how he transitioned into kind of studying human dynamics as a as a biologist so he teaches this class and then switched gears into learning more about human sexuality by 1947 dr kinsey then became the founder of the institute for sex research because after teaching this class he was like i don't want to teach this marriage prep class anymore but i do really want to study about like sexual attitudes and behaviors in humans. So mm-hmm. he founds this institute in 1947, and then by 1948 and then 1953, released his most groundbreaking work and what he's most known for, sexual behavior in the human male and sexual behavior in the human female, respectively. So 1948, this book comes out, Sexual Behavior of the Human Male. At this point, Kinsey saw himself as a non-clinical human sexuality researcher, something absolutely unheard of at the time. He is quoted as saying, we are the recorders of facts, not the judges of the behaviors we describe. So throughout the two books, uh, which were known as the Kinsey Papers, Kinsey and his team collected about 18,000 sex histories, and of those, Kinsey himself recorded nearly 8,000. Jesus. I'm... That is, I mean, if you're gonna, if you're gonna collect data, you might as well collect as much as you can. That feels excessive, no? Well, you know what? We love a thorough researcher. And if people were willing to participate in this, this was over a long period of time, but it truly was groundbreaking the magnitude of 
data he had Mm -hmm. pertaining to almost exclusively people's you know sex lives and yeah true who they were having sex with what they were doing things like that so this was in the 40s and 50s so again pretty kind of groundbreaking before we get into the scale which is included within those papers i want to give a little bit more context as to where the country was at again we talked about this was the 40s and the 50s and we also talked today about uh me being in grad school i don't want to talk about it anymore after this it is what it is (laughs) but one of the things in my program we work with frequently is the american psychiatric association's diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders so the same thing jared mentioned i didn't know he was going to mention it that's so crazy that our stories are so linked thematically and and actually yeah they're so aligned today so The DSM was first published in 1952. So for those who are trying their best to follow along with this timeline, um, the DSM was first published after Kinsey's publication, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. Kinsey's original research came out, then the DSM came out, and the DSM, like Jared had mentioned earlier, classified homosexuality as a mental disorder until 1973. That's, first of all, absolutely... Wild. We are currently in the DSM five, so the fifth is fifth edition, and it's something that. So in my program, you use it to literally diagnose and review criteria for diagnosing mental disorders. So anything ranging from autism spectrum disorders to other like to psychiatric conditions, bipolar disorder, things like that. This is used as that tool. It's like the the primary standard, and okay. so the fact that. It was so recently listed as a mental disorder, and the current edition of the DSM has very problematic things in it still, is absolutely wild. And so this just goes to kind of underscore that Kinsey's work was pretty monumental for this time. Him and his team were able to create a research environment that compiled detailed sexual histories and behavior without classifying this behavior as abnormal, criminal, or otherwise disordered or pathologized. So the bar is super low, but we did leap over it. We were able to like high jump over that bar. Yeah, I'll Um, I'll take any little step towards progress over anything yeah it was really cool because people were able to talk openly about their sexual experiences and histories in a research environment again without it made to seem clinical or wrong or otherwise like disordered in any way The Kinsey Institute says, quote, in the early 19th century, moralists and legal authorities define the state of sexual knowledge and appropriate practice. In the second half of that century, physicians, psychiatrists, and criminologists, joined by other clinicians in the early decades of the 20th century, dominated theory and research, mainly under the notions of sexual disease and deviancy. So these are all the things that Dr. Kinsey was working alongside, but was trying to avoid. So this idea that any talk or conversation about sex or sex that wasn't monogamous or heterosexual or within a marriage, that that was wrong or taboo um, or like a disease, this was what was the standard at the time and what he was trying to avoid. Now we're going to get into the scale, the Kinsey scale, which I think is what he may 
be most known for. Dr. Kinsey and his team, including Wardle Pomeroy, sorry if I pronounced your name wrong, Wardle, I don't know how to pronounce that name. <laughs> Is it spelled like the game? Wordle. <laughs> no, maybe I have a weird accent now. War- Wardell. Wordle. W-A-R-D-E-L-L. Wardell. Okay. Wardell. Okay. Wardle. Okay. <laughs> so Dr. Kinsey and his team compiled their research and created the heterosexual homosexual rating scale known more commonly as the Kinsey scale. One of the main things about the scale was that it allowed for researchers to explain their findings that people were not exclusively heterosexual or homosexual. Um, it means that the research team used the scale as a measurement tool to assess people's sexual behavior and behavior for the researchers and within the study included thoughts, feelings, as well as physical sex acts with the same or opposite sex. So it's kind of a lot, but that's what was most groundbreaking about the the research finding and the scale itself. So the scale goes from zero to six with a score of zero being exclusively heterosexual and six being exclusively homosexual. Scores of one through five include a spectrum of sexual activity with either sex. Um, so there's not a real quote unquote test. So Myself, a grown-ass adult, as well as I'm sure many like pubescent kids may have been fooled by BuzzFeed quizzes trying to tell you if you're straight or gay. Um, <laughs> but the, 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 way, the way that it worked was that after qualitative interviews with the research team, people were assessed on this scale. So there's not really an exact test, but don't worry, I took a bunch of them online. Perfect. You did research yourself. Yeah, exactly. So in a condensed way, um, the questions included, to whom are you attracted? Who do you have sex with? Who do you have sexual fantasies about? With whom do you form strong emotional bonds? Who do you feel the most comfortable socializing with? And then things like the idea of having sex with someone of the opposite sex is, and then you select a choice of adjectives and then the idea of having someone of having sex with someone of the same sex is and then same thing kind of a list of adjectives ranging from desirable interesting all the way to um, upsetting or obscene or things like that so you've taken the test but I was going to ask if you want to share where do you think you'd fall on one of these sort of real sort of fake tests sure so I do know my answer um but I would fall at a very hard six, like it, it okay. like all the way to the right. Um, uh, so, okay. Tell you a little fun story. So okay. our collective best friend, Brielle, um, her and I met. I love you, Brielle. We love you, Brielle. <laughs> her and I met in high school, um, same high school where I met you. And we had sat next to each other in class um, and we were becoming pretty good friends and we had messaged a lot on Facebook and one day we're talking or, or she sends me a message and in the message, she basically says, Hey, have you ever heard of this thing called the Kinsey scale? And I was like, no, um, what is that? And she was like, oh, well, basically there's six numbers and it tells you where you fall on the Kinsey scale. Um, it tells you where, if you were more straight or more gay or kind of somewhere in between. And I just want to let you know that I'm a five 
And we didn't talk about things like this, really. Um, So this was coming kind of as a surprise to me. And so me being incredibly closeted, like so deep in the closet, um, I was like, oh, hmm. Send that. Send me the link. I want to take the the quiz. Like fully knowing <laughs> what I would get. Right. Um, but I was like, oh, like can you send me? Can you send me the link? Because I would really love to know like where I fall. And so I took it genuinely, and to nobody's surprise, I I guess some people's surprise, except my own, I fell out of six. And so I messaged her, and I was like, how weird, uh, so strange. I don't know how this happened. Um, but I am a six on the Kinsey scale. <laughs> I don't know what turn of events have led us here, but uh, it turns out. It is out. so strange <laughs> how things happen like this. I don't know what I, what question got me, but that is how we both kind of came out to each other. Um, and I never heard that story. Yeah. And, and I love hearing that story. That's really what bonded us and kind of connected us right from the beginning. It was like a few weeks into into knowing each other like it really wasn't a long time and she was the first person that I ever came out to in my like real life yeah and so the Kinsey scale um I have a lot to thank for my relationship and friendship with her that's very sweet and I'm sorry I'm getting a little bit emotional because uh the three of us all live very far apart now and Jared you could cut this out but I really miss (laughs) I really miss you guys. (laughs) That's really sweet, though. That's that's also a very funny story. And I feel like you both had to be pretty brave in that moment to be like, all right, I guess we're doing this. Well, it was this is it. Yeah, it was really um, impressive on Brielle's part because she was the one that had I had zero intention. I was like, all right, baby, we're straight and we're going to be straight until we aren't anymore. Um, and she was the one that kind of was the one that like knocked on my little closet door and was like, Hey, how you doing in there? Uh, she's the <laughs> one that brought me out. So yeah, it was really, it was a really impressive moment on her part. Um, and she's a big reason, uh, why I came out to my friends and family and how we're kind of here today. I love that. Brielle, best friend of the pod. Ser- literal um. best friend of the pod. <laughs> So um, I spent part of my day today taking like a bunch of these because I was like, okay, this is fun, right? My BuzzFeed quiz history is going to be all sorts of messed up now. (laughs) And so, but I also love the descriptions. So I got two, which is predominantly heterosexual, but more than (laughs) incidentally homosexual. It so happens that you've you've become heterosexual. Right. Like, I love this incidentally. Like, what an interesting word choice that I just am, like, very obsessed with that being the descriptors. But essentially, that's the scale. So it's, it's, like, incidentally more homosexual than heterosexual or whatever the case may be mm-hmm. so it was a fun afternoon if you want to take them they're super fun they're not like the real methodology behind the original research but they're fun also i feel like there is such a, a spectrum of sexualities and labels that kinsey may have not had in his arsenal because sexuality has evolved so much so if you're listening and you don't think that you would fit on these numbers that's okay 
whatever you feel yes. and whoever you are attracted to is your thing and you're doing you and don't feel like you need to yes. be on the scale between one and six. You can be whatever. And the Kinsey Institute says it itself. So I have a quote here from them that says, quote, the Kinsey scale does not address all possible sexual identities. It lists some others. The Klein sexual orientation grid and the storm scale have stepped in to further define sexual expression. The Klein sexual orientation grid developed by Fritz Klein features seven variables and three situations in time, past, present, and ideal. The storm scale developed by Michael D. Storms plots eroticism on an X and Y axis, and this allows for a much greater range of descriptions. Kinsey, Storm, and Klein are three of more than 200 scales to measure and describe sexual orientation. 200? So, yeah, so... Wow. There's a lot of different scales, and so if it's something that people find useful um, Mm -hmm. in learning things about themselves or learning new things, then absolutely use them. But this is by no means exhaustive. And that kind of leads me to some of the controversy around the Kinsey scale. So again, this was released in, I want to get the exact date, so I'm going to scroll up. So this was released in 1948. So of course there has been some progress made. Um, But I want to begin with the fact that the Kinsey scale does not really account for asexual people. So on the scale in his study, asexual people were rated with an X. So if we think back, so the scale went from zero to six. And if you were expressing no sexual desires, it just, you were kind of just marked an X. So though Kinsey did acknowledge asexuality, again, not as a disorder or deficiency and recognize that it was different than practicing celibacy, it was not the focus of his research and his works mainly included behaviors, thoughts, feelings, and experiences of homosexual and heterosexual men and women. So David Jay, the founder of the Asexuality Visibility and Education Network, says, I think the Kinsey reports are a great example of the way that we've been treated historically. Um, Mr. J explains, researchers acknowledge that we existed, but no one talked about us directly. So Hmm. it was kind of a purposeful exclusion, although, like I said, Kinsey wasn't denying that existence. He just, it wasn't a focus of his research, and therefore people may not be able to find themselves included in that. So Similarly, while the work to address the continuum of sexuality was at that time and still is much needed, the Kinsey scale has been criticized for bisexuality erasure or delegitimizing bisexuality as a fully formed sexual orientation. So because our systems governing sexuality are so binary, the Kinsey scale ends up mirroring those same kind of binary tendencies. It's not inclusive of all sexual or gender identities and primarily reflects on attitudes and behaviors among cis people about either being straight or gay. Um, Jennifer German writes, quote, Kinsey surely intended to show degrees of bisexuality, but falling between the two extremes, meaning heterosexual or homosexual could mean that one is both homosexual and heterosexual or that one is neither. So there wasn't really, it wasn't really an emphasis of bisexuality as a fully formed kind of sexuality. It was more just on the scale between one or the other. Mm -hmm. 
it may in general just be misrepresentative about queer people and their experiences. So aside from this really important idea that people can experience a range of same or opposite sex attractions, um, one of the other most cited takeaways from the Kinsey papers is the report that 10% of the population is gay. This number was based on the research that Kinsey and his team did, but that meant having people recall things like the number of orgasms that they've had and other measures that are probably less than accurate in determining people's identity. Right. Out of all the questions that you could ask, it feels like that's probably not the one that's most accurate or effective. (laughs) Right, right. It's just like not really reflective of contemporary sexual attitudes or beliefs or like really inclusive of the ways all people may engage in sex Mm -hmm. or define sex or things like that. Right. Um, So... You know, it can be really hard to navigate your own sexuality and acceptance of that sexuality, especially in a country where you don't always have access to age-appropriate and accurate sex education. And we're looking at you, Florida. We're directly looking Mm -hmm. at you. (laughs) And just generally exist in a country that shoves these kind of binaries in your face. Mm -hmm. And so... People, like we talked about, end up turning to other sources like porn or honestly those Am I Gay BuzzFeed quizzes. And maybe the Kinsey scale was part of that journey for some people, like that cute story of you and Brielle. And so maybe it was positive or maybe it was negative. Mainly at the time, the Kinsey scale was groundbreaking, but now is outdated. And certainly the scale perpetuates by erasure and does not really legitimize bisexuality, asexuality, pansexuality, non-binary gender identities, and a whole host of other things. The Kinsey papers certainly did open a door to non-pathologizing human sexuality research, which I think is the main takeaway. Though America Mm -hmm. very promptly closed that door right back in his face and has kind of ceased to recognize the importance of continued human sexuality research. So let's do new research, let's support and fund research, you know, that's kind of already being done. The only sex education I really had was that American Girl Doll puberty book. And uh, let me know if you can relate, because so far a lot of people have, but I did have a really fun time when I originally learned about Dr. Kinsey's research in college and kind of more this week. And if you're like me, I do encourage people to use the Kinsey Institute website that compiles not only their information, but a lot of really good sources if you do have questions about sex and sexuality. And also places like your local Planned Parenthood, they have a lot about education and really inclusive education. Um Today, I got to explore, like I said, the penis size bibliography, which was one of their most commonly (laughs) searched questions. So I promise you, your penis is normal. If that was a question that you had, it's normal. And also the fact that 69-year-olds are out here masturbating like a lot. Mm. And there's a huge variety to what people even consider to be sex, which, Mm. by the way, you don't need penetration, people. No, please. Let's let's get that through our heads. Yeah, let's... If you take anything away from our first two episodes, let that be one of them. I've been really happy with these topics for the first two weeks. We've got covered a lot of a wide range of those nouns in here. Absolutely. We've got people, people, places, things. things. Yeah. So that was the Kinsey scale. That's awesome. That was great. First, that's crazy that there are 200 tests or, you know, some sort of indicators of human sexuality. I think it's really important to note, like you said, that the Kinsey scale is outdated and 
does not encompass everything. Um, I didn't know that whatsoever. And I think the important thing is that they're taking what was originally developed and used and opened a lot of doors, like you said, but then they continue to evolve and, and they continue to be more inclusive and kind of grow with the times as terminology and sort of the understanding of LGBTQ plus issues and, um, um, sexualities and gender expressions became more widely known and more um, mainstream or like popularized. Had he not done this and had he not taught that one class, and then it's such a pivotal yeah. moment in the development of understanding of sexualities and genders. And like we were so close yeah. to not having that. Absolutely. And I think that's the great takeaway of. All of these things were groundbreaking for many reasons, and we've talked about a lot of them, but the other thing we didn't necessarily focus on is the reception. Like, Mm. this was widely regarded as really important research at the time, and so that means that people were able to benefit from that and felt validated by the research, felt like they could be open, felt like they were normal, which all of the things we've described today are perfectly Mm -hmm. normal and acceptable. And so I think that's what was really important. And that's what I wish continued out of that. It was kind of like, and the Kinsey Institute and a lot of their previous research is still used within human sexuality classes and understandings of human sexuality. And that's not necessarily a negative thing, but, you know, there's a lot more research that needs to be done or Mm -hmm. is being done and should be better publicized or funded so that people, again, can have more tools or have their questions answered in an accurate and informed and up-to-date way so that they can know, once again, that all of these things are perfectly valid and normal and do not belong in the DSM. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And now, you know, the Kinsey Institute still exists and they're still conducting human sexuality research and so let's see more of it seriously absolutely thanks for tuning into episode two of historically really good friends where we talked about two ways sexuality was explored in the 20th century this is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes accidentally saying orgasm in your high school biology class just a little bit more fun Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And to see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at historicallyreally. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.